At the beginning of her career, Marlo Thomas wondered if people would compare her talents to those of her father, Danny Thomas. Was she as good as he was? As funny as he was? Danny said all this straight. You're a thoroughbred, he told his daughter right from the start. And thoroughbreds don't watch other horses, they run their own race. Just before Marlo stepped into one of her first roles in Summerstock, a package arrived in her backstage dressing room. It was a set of horse blinders and a note from her father. It said, Run your own race, kid. Danny Thomas was a wise father to advise his children in that fashion, for many of us were not released so freely by our parents. From this complicated set of early relationships, we continue to feel waves of self-recrimination and guilt. This can occur long after our parents are gone. I am constantly amazed at how powerfully our early family experiences can continue to tug at us, even from the grave. One of my clients, who is in her 70s and has retired from a successful sales career, had to begin seeing a therapist because she dreams of her mother almost every night and is plagued by unresolved issues with her parents. Her mother has been dead for 51 years. The second step for living independently is make the best possible peace with your parents. A jogger sits on a curb two miles from his home, sobbing uncontrollably. Fortunately, it is late at night and his neighbors do not see him, but it is not the first time that it has happened. In fact, he tells me, when he runs harder than usual, it is becoming an almost automatic reflex to cry. Here is a man who, by most people's standards, is extraordinarily successful. A surgeon who spends more than half his time coaching surgical residents. He lives in a huge two-story Tudor home with leaded glass windows and several fireplaces. He's tall and blonde and slender, married to a bright, vivacious woman, and they have two children who are as good-looking and bright as they are. At her first session, it became obvious that for all this doctor's outward good fortune, he was riddled with emotional pain and plagued with self-loathing. He castigated himself for dozens of things, but I will give only one example. He told me again and again in our sessions that he did not apply himself sufficiently in medical school and should have taken better advantage of his opportunities there. This made no sense to me, since I knew that he had been asked to become a professor immediately upon completion of his residency. But no amount of arguing could change his self-criticism on this issue. My colleague and I quickly established that this client was not psychotic. He did not hear voices and never lost touch with reality. He went to work every day and functioned in a superior manner in the outside world. He was simply mangled with overpowering fears and self-doubts. My friend's symptoms were a little more pronounced than most, but he is not unlike many people with whom I work. On the outside, they seem models of confidence and success, but on the inside, they are in turmoil and feel that if anyone knew them as they really are, they would react with disgust. 
I asked the standard questions about traumatic experiences in the past, and he reported no more than usual. How does one go about helping such a person? It would not help to give him pep talks about how much he has to be proud of and how many reasons he would should feel confident. No. All the emotions from some unspecified source were sweeping over him at times, like unexpected waves at the beach. Such emotions do not come from nowhere. They are almost certainly connected to some past experience or experiences too painful to be kept in the consciousness. So while the memory of the event is forgotten, the emotions linger. As we began to work, I asked in more detail about his childhood. It seemed significant that he barely recalled the years before his parents' divorce. I asked about his parents. Were they living? Was he close to them? I'm fairly close to my mom. She still lives in Ohio, and I see her once or twice a year. Dad lives alone out here, but I don't see much of him. He gets on my nerves pretty quickly. Then he added hastily, But I love him, of course. He is my father. There was a slight sign of discomfort in his gestures as this topic came up, and his eyes were averted as he told me about his father. This was a possible tip-off. The following week, we began to work back into his childhood. In the very first session, we hit pay dirt. It turned out that his father was hardly the lovable person he wanted to believe he had been. In fact, the man was a genuine psychotic, and the boy's childhood was one long struggle to maintain his own sanity. Until his mother finally divorced him, his father had been in and out of mental hospitals, had fits of heavy drinking, and had beaten the rest of the family regularly, sometimes when he was entirely sober. Nearly all these early memories had been blocked from consciousness, but as he relaxed in the chair, pictures began to resurface from his childhood. He recalled in excruciating detail times when he would hear his father beating his mother in the bedroom. I'd lie in bed, he said, wishing he'd come in and beat me some more because I knew I could take it and she couldn't. Some schizophrenics are gentle and loving despite their illness, but this wounded man was profoundly ill. He was paranoid, hostile, and cruel, and his two little boys were the handiest recipients of his invective. Eventually, my friend's younger brother collapsed, and he had spent most of his adult life in mental hospitals. No one knows why one child survives such hell and another does not. Somehow, my client made it through. He spent as much time as possible away from the house during adolescence, and he moved away completely at the earliest opportunity. Fortunately, he discovered that he had a flair for science and an ability to study long nights without sleep, and he pulled himself up to his present position by his bootstraps. It is now much easier for both of us to understand why he originally showed up at my office talking about the recurring thought, there's something wrong about me, and I'm no good. 
Now we know something of the reason for that pumping, gushing stream of self-abuse and self-loathing despite his outward achievements, and we have discovered where he learned to talk to himself with such shame and rejection. The wonder is that he has functioned as well as he has in the outside world. Why did the boy accept those messages from his father? Why didn't he recognize that the man was crazy and see his attacks as unwarranted? To ask a young child to weed out fiction from truth in parental messages is to ask the impossible. Toddlers do not distinguish reality from unreality. They trust the people who give them food, bathe their bodies, and help them get back to sleep when they wake up frightened at night. We have to be much older to say, my father's got a problem and my I'm going to ignore what he says here. For children to say, my father is crazy, is in fact to go crazy in themselves, so instead they decide, there must be something wrong with me, I can't seem to do anything right. It becomes a part of a child's belief system, but the emotion hurts and is so powerful that the whole thing is stuffed into the unconscious. So it was that long periods of my patient's childhood had been blocked out. But emotions are not as susceptible to repression as the memories that prompted them, and since the unconscious is a permanent repository, from time to time in this boy's life, for instance, when he had jogged hard three miles and was panting, those emotions would spring up into a consciousness, and a seemingly successful man found himself sitting on a curb crying. It happens that this story has a happy ending. In several years of therapy, my friend took a long look at all those repressed experiences, processed them, and began to sort out the beliefs he had brought from childhood that were no longer valid. And concomitantly, the feelings began to lose their hold on him. He no longer needs regular treatment, and the surges of self-doubt now come very rarely. The point of the story is this. We continue to carry with us emotions of worthlessness long after the facts have changed. As a line from T.S. Eliot has it, we are a set of obsolete responses. Thus, there is value in going back over the data of our pre-adult years and examining the standards by which we learn to judge ourselves. Many people who read a case, such as the one reported above, will say, Well, I'm not going to go back and open up a can of worms from my past. Besides, what good does it do to blame your parents for everything? This is a fair question and reflects a common criticism of psychotherapy. Most therapists do not pursue the past in order to blame other people for their clients' problems. Most parents did the best they knew how. Nor do we look back in order to find scapegoats or to escape responsibility for our problems. Quite to the contrary, we look to the past precisely in order to make some changes in our course, only with some insight as to how we arrived at our present position can we take measures to change our direction. Insight may not solve the problem, but it is the first step.